welcome to the International Women's Day podcast series two. In 2022, the theme is Breaking the Bias. So following on from exploring feminism in series one, this podcast aims to explore how we break the bias in the divorce arena in the UK. I'm Kerry Griffiths. I'm a proud feminist and I'm also a financial planner who works exclusively with women divorcing wealthy and powerful men. So you can probably guess why this is a topic I want to dig into. I'm interviewing some leading academics, lawyers and divorce coaches to uncover where the bias in divorce shows up and debate how we can create the change we feel we need to see. Hello, welcome to episode two. I am over the moon to have Samantha Gould along, who is head of PR and campaigns at Now Pensions. She is um, a guest who appeared on my podcast last year, so you might remember her. She's a self-confessed pension geek, just like me, which is why we get on so well. And she has been leading the initiative on the gender pensions gap. Um, And she's working with industry peers and policymakers to create a fairer pension system and get an additional two and a half million people saved in the UK. And it's her work in this area that's won her numerous awards, including Women in the City Rising Star for 2021, as well as being shortlisted for the UN Women UK Person of the Year. So Sam, welcome and thank you for all the amazing work you're doing in this area. It's great to see you again. Yeah, and you, Karina, to see you. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the research that's been going on, what you've been doing. Um, fill us in. What, what's, what's the latest? So we have been um, looking into the gender pensions gap since it became um, a requirement for businesses to report on gender pay gap in 2017. Yeah. Um, and obviously the gender pay gap, which is the difference between men and women in terms of pay, lower pay for women would ultimately lead to lower pension wealth by the time they've finished their careers. So my first report was launched in 2019, which showed a gap of over 100,000 between men and women in terms of pension wealth at age 65. And then... £100,000, yes. Um, And then the second report I launched in 2020 showed that the gap had increased to almost £150,000. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, so obviously quite a steep jump. And obviously off the back of the recent pandemic that we've all been through for the last two years, actually we're seeing that the wealth gaps being much bigger than we'd actually anticipated. So when we think about the progress that was starting to be made in terms, especially things like gender pay gap, um, obviously a lot of firms actually haven't been or haven't had to report on their gender pay gap. It was paused throughout the pandemic. And where, you know, we've had national school lockdowns and obviously furlough requests and redundancies obviously women were disproportionately affected than men and obviously that obviously has ramifications on their pay and wealth so it's not good news unfortunately yeah it's not good news I mean the awareness is clearly rising um, and the discussion but the changes have gone the opposite way then for those reasons yeah no absolutely and I think when there's been quite a lot of um, stats released about the amount of money that we Brits managed to save when we were 
locked in physically right? locked in yeah. uh, so I think it peaked at 25 billion um but <laughs> the most recent stats say actually since the restrictions have been eased that actually all of those savings <laughs> have now pretty much been depleted but obviously at the moment we have a huge cost of living crisis going on at the moment and obviously energy and fuel prices going through the roof uh, so it kind of feels like it's never ending obviously we've just battled our way through two years of you know juggling everything especially you know single parents you know sole earner and sole carer um, and you know we spoke to some mums throughout lockdown and some of them were having to make really hard decisions about you know do I work or do I stay home and look after my children you know and a lot of companies where you can't work flexibly so if you work in hospitality or you know the NHS where you physically have to be at work you know some women were faced with impossible decisions you know with national school closures you know there's not much that we can do in terms of multitasking as much as we'd we'd quite like to some jobs just demand obviously that you are there so um yeah, um, it's not been great for women over the last two years. Right, um, and two years can have a really big impact on your pension wealth, can have a significant impact on how that grows. So we, we're here to talk about breaking the bias. Um, that's International Women's Day theme for this year. Um, and specific, specifically, if we can, kind of linking that into divorce and where we might see that coming up as well. So maybe a little bit about pension sharing and how pension wealth is looking there. Um, what, where do you think the bias is showing up? Kind of what's your thoughts about that? So our research shows that um, with divorced women, that they have around £26,000 saved in their pensions. And that's just under half of the average woman, which is 57000 And compared to a man of £203,000. So uh, obviously the, the numbers are quite uh, huge. Dark, isn't it? Yeah, um, absolutely huge. Um, obviously, with women, we take time out of the workforce. So, you know, I think typically women will spend 10 years out um, and they might go back in some capacity, but it typically will be part time, which obviously part time hours means part time earnings. Um, so obviously, if you're compared to a man who might have a 40, 50 year career with zero gaps, Obviously, women have more um, stagnated careers where, you know, they'll be full time, then go away and might be off for a few years, then come back, maybe part time. So obviously, our career patterns are a bit more disjointed than men. That's for children, but also for looking after parents. is quite Yeah, absolutely. There's quite a lot of caring responsibility that comes into it. Yeah. And again, you know, through things like the pandemic, you know, it wasn't necessarily just children who women were looking after but also other relatives um and yeah I think the caring responsibility was really um polarized throughout the pandemic because of furlough requests you know more women were granted furlough requests than men um and as we already know 75% of part-time workers are women so hence you know the gender pay gap on top of that as well um so I think there is a huge um bias in terms of um I guess financial wellness especially when it comes to retirement age I just think women tend to have a lot more to battle with in terms of different priorities um so 
we are um, campaigning for um, some policy changes, which we think will help equal the playing field a little bit more. So one of them is to remove the £10,000 threshold. So at the moment, how auto-enrolment works is that if you start working and as long as you're aged over 22 and earning £10,000 per year per role, you will be automatically enrolled. Um, But obviously, if 75% of part-time workers are women, they might not meet that threshold, which is why so many more women are locked out than men. So we're asking that the that £10,000 threshold is removed and that would get another 2.2 million women saving in the UK. So obviously that's huge and it would be over a billion pounds of um, annual pension contributions. So it is really sizable change that we could change. And also change um, dropping the age down from 22 to 18, again, just so as soon as you were to start entering work that you are automatically enrolled. And again, that would um, affect positively more women than men. Um, so years to build up in, doesn't it? If we're going to have that time out, the sooner we can start. Absolutely. Yeah. So those, you know, additional four years, women do actually statistically live four years longer than men. So those additional four years that we could get as soon as we enter the workforce could be huge in terms of making a difference. And, you know, over a 40 50 year career and with things like the rise of flexible working so also in the report from last year um really positive from the ons was that there are now more women working full-time than ever before and that's through Mm. things like flexible working so again crucially not dropping your hours but being able to work flexibly and full-time at home allows them to obviously earn a higher salary which helps to reduce some of these gaps that we're seeing as well one of the um controversies i think that we need to overcome one of the arguments that we face when we talk about these changes that are needed and the reason that women have less pension wealth um is very much around this choice to be a caregiver um and it opens up this debate i think sam around the value um placed on caregiving versus the value placed on earning and so we end up in a situation where for family reasons, often a woman has made certain career choices, taken time out, raised family, um, joint decisions, and that impacts her pension wealth. Um, and then that value isn't necessarily appreciated and kind of rectified in their ex's mind when they come to divorce. So that pension sharing door is a really interesting one because we know what the law says in terms of you know, pensions being a marital asset. And we know that the law talks about the fact that um, caregiving is equally as valued uh, within the law. But there's a journey, isn't there, to getting actually society to recognise those two points, that caregiving is equally as valued um, and that pensions are a marital asset on divorce as well. Is that Has that come up much in your research? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think the last figures that I've seen is that there's only only two in 10 divorces have a pension sharing order. So that means that 80% don't. And, you know, when you look at pension wealth, you know, they can be the second largest asset in a marriage after a property. But it's something that seems to always be overlooked. And I think um, you and I were speaking before about, you know, trying to, obviously divorces 
horrendous. It's not a great time. Um, I've certainly been through it. Um, and you do, there's part of you that wants it over as soon as possible. And you kind of, you're a bit clouded sometimes and you just say, I will just do anything just to speed it up and get it obviously out, out of the way and done and, you know, close that book. Um, so I think often women are just not presented with the opportunity, especially if they have been, you know, the caregiver in a marriage might have be so far removed from the the finances of the household and, you know, not understand really how much pension that there might be, you know, you know, as a household. So they don't really understand what they're giving up on. So another one of our um, policy proposals is to make pension sharing default on divorce and actually for the process to be, you have to opt out rather than opt in. So I think from memory, uh, the pension sharing tick box is so hidden on the back of a third or fourth page in, and it's a tiny little tick tick box. Um, Obviously I work in pensions, so uh, (laughs) made sure to, to look out for it. But, you know, if I think when you're going through the process, you're so overwhelmed and it's very emotive. You're not, you know, reading everything under a magnifying glass you are really reliant on the the help and support and advice of you know professionals around you you know such as solicitors so unless someone really points it out to you I just don't think you would necessarily consider the importance of you know that pension wealth when obviously it comes to retirement I think women tend to be focused more on the day-to-day and say actually you know uh, on balance the property is more important to me than you know what I might need in 20 30 years when I retire so again I think there is a huge bias in terms of the the treatment between men and women at divorce there are so many factors that feed into that and part of it is whether you do have a legal team on board so if you've got a legal team on board they're obliged to tell you about pension sharing on divorce and um, that conversation happens and um, that input exists but where there's divorces where there's no legal team which is can happen is still really common that's when we yep. tend to see those kind of risks uh, arise but even when there's a legal team on board women have this real battle to convince their ex that what they're asking for is just normal it's just fair you know there is this very much this language around it being his pension um, and this lack of understanding that her contribution is valued and also the work that you've done and kind of the stats that you shared today around the part-time work, the difference in her pot versus his pot, all of those are things. The more that we can talk about them and kind of raise those figures to the front of people's mind, that disparity between those two situations should make it really clear that this is a fundamental part of divorce. You know, there's, there's no way forward. I was at the divorce fair this week, last week, and the amount of women who came up to me um, who couldn't answer when I asked them what their income was going to be in retirement. So I had lots of women saying, I don't think I need a financial planner because, you know, everything's going swimmingly. And I was like, OK, what's your income in retirement? And if you cannot answer that, you can't sign a divorce settlement. You haven't got enough information. Um, yeah. And I think that that really needs to be like an absolute basic. You have to be able to say what your income is in retirement before you can agree to this. Because without yeah. it, without knowing that information, for her to be able to articulate that and him to be able to articulate that, they haven't really understood the decisions that they're making. And also, I don't think, you know, if people are t- 
to be asked, you know, what does a good income in retirement look like? I don't think many people could even answer that question. Mm -hmm. So I know as an industry, we tend to use the PLSA's retirement living standards, which talks about um, basic, comfortable and moderate um, lifestyles in retirement. And then you've got a London and then an outer London base rate. Um, But again, the pounds and the pence really don't help in terms of you know articulating or thinking about the kind of retirement you want so it's things like holidays and type of groceries and how many times a week you might want to go to grocery shopping and you know cars and kind of looking at your I guess a basket of goods in retirement and trying to picture what type of retirement obviously you'd like I mean we'd all want to be sitting on a beach every day but um, that's very unlikely you know obviously a huge assumption as well that you're not also then having to still pay off a mortgage in your retirement years which again in divorce is far more likely to happen yeah absolutely so yeah if you if you don't have a property asset and you're still renting obviously that rental money every month will take up such a significant proportion of your retirement income um so it is a, a a massive issue that i think there's just an assumption that by the time you're in retirement you won't have a mortgage but actually, when you speak to people, there's not actually a real plan as, of how they're going to make that happen. <laughs> so, you know, they might be not that far from retirement and still have a mortgage. But the assumption is that they won't have it by the time they retire. Again, there's no real plan of how they're actually going to get rid of that mortgage. So, yeah, I think um, it's all around, you know, financial wellness and just trying to get money on the national conversation. And I think, you know, again, off the back of the pandemic, I think, you know, the the money and financial situation of households has been so under the spotlight. And I think it has made people really think about, you know, their income, especially if they've been impacted by, you know, furloughs and redundancies that we are starting to see people really take, I guess, pay more attention to their household finances and really work out what they need. I think having that insight into your finances and creating more awareness is only going to be a good thing because one of the big things that I see with the women that I work with specifically is they feel really out of touch with their finances. And that can create a massive bias in divorce. If you feel that you're X has more money knowledge, more awareness of finances, and you're having to negotiate some of the biggest financial decisions of your life, you're going to not feel on an equal level playing field with him at all. I mean, we we talked about this, Sam, briefly before we came on the call around, you know, men have bigger pension wealth, men have generally bigger investment wealth. Um, And a part of that is because they are more self-confident with money. They are more willing to take action and to invest and as women we're a little more hesitant and that delay and that lack of investing shows up you know we don't get that compounding effect does that come up in your research Sam? Not around investment specifically but you know just in conversations that I've had with you know friends and colleagues I think there's there is um they call it the investment gap don't they in terms of that women are less um, confident investing than men and also I think um, again back to you know the broader money conversation I just think potentially that there's not the immediate kind of where would you go to find out you know if, if you did want to start investing if you did want information you know who would be the obvious first call so obviously we have the money and pension service which is obviously run by UK government obviously it's totally free they've got amazing tools and resources and calculators on there but again I don't necessarily think you know what your question is yet 
and you know I think it's around you know it's great to see a lot of um, you know like consumer titles and magazines now that they do have you know money editions and there's a lot more focus on female finances um, oh, but again yeah. it's just signposting where they are and I think just making women feel more empowered about you know asking the question but I guess us as an industry helping to signpost where they can go to to find the information as well. And then changing our language and ensuring that we create environments where they feel that it's accessible and welcoming um, and they're not going to be judged and it's not going to be dull or boring and it's going to be relevant. There's a lot of work I think that still needs to be done. There are lots of female advisors just like me who are creating a different space so that you can have conversations that are based on outcomes and based on what you want your money to do for you and therefore kind of that journey and that planning becomes um, more more important and more valid and more valuable. Um, because traditionally, it has been an environment, financial services has been a space where it hasn't been easy or attractive for women to be money savvy. You know, if he wanted to do it and he was like well interested in it, we'll crack on because I think it's dull. Because it doesn't hasn't spoke our language. And now that we are changing, I think, for men and women, we are very much as, a, as an industry, as a profession in financial services, aware that we need to talk more about outcomes um, and aware of actually articulating to clients impact of choices. I think we're, we're creating a space that is a, a space that women want to be in where they haven't been before. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, I think it's around, you know, there's more women now working full time than ever before. And reading a stat the other day, you probably know it or can quote it better than I can, but that there will be more female millionaires in the UK than men and not that far away either. Yeah. And that there's more um, female entrepreneurs. There's new startups by um, female owners than men. So I do feel like there is, you know, a tide turning and, you know, that there is a real need and a demand for women to be supported in terms of you know building confidence in terms of you know investment knowledge or guidance advice but again not necessarily paying for that advice I think you know kind of knowing where to go to get some free advice and guidance yeah yeah Yeah, um, and that comes back to curriculum as well doesn't it you know can, can we change things at school in terms of what we're learning and I know that finances are on the curriculum but the scope of what is covered and how we do it I know there is a lot of room there I think and all of which if we can get these foundations right mean that we're going to come across less barriers as we develop our relationships and keep that interaction with money throughout our marriages so that should people split we end up in a situation where there is not a sense of vulnerability from the person who hasn't been engaged yeah absolutely and um back to the school's point we've been working with a charity called debate mate since 2019 and over the past year in lockdown i was mentoring 700 primary school students aged between eight and 11 and teaching them about the basics of um, budgeting budgeting finances pensions and saving and you know why should you save is it important to save and um, we're doing a big campaign for them um, next week for International Women's Day Um, but I think absolutely we need to start the money conversations as early as possible and I know that there is some research that shows that money habits are formed by the ages of or between the ages of seven and nine years old and it's all learned behaviours from your family and your household and um, I think we need to kind of take it 
off of the responsibility of the parents who themselves might not feel comfortable talking about money or you know feel like they really manage their money and I do think we need to provide more support with people at schools to try and make them feel a lot more empowered and I'm doing some really fun projects with some students this year in terms of classroom packs and some content for for lessons for primary schools and secondary schools but again I think it's all back to what you said about starting that conversation and just making people feel comfortable about speaking about money to kind of take the scariness out of money to make people feel a lot more empowered. Great. I mean, if we want a different outcome, if we want the next generation to, to navigate this differently, then we need to break this silence. Um, you know, we don't talk to our friends, to our parents, even about what we earn or what we owe or what we've got saved. You know, it'd be really unusual to sit with your mate around the table and talk about how much was in your pension. If you knew, it would just be unusual. And, and certainly you wouldn't talk to them about how much you earn. And that's something I think significantly needs to change because if we can break that silence in front of our children you know how many children know how much their parents earn my little boy does um but my, my parents certainly would never have shared that information with me and that's i think is how we break break the silence and get to a stage where money is just normal it's just a you know it's just a commodity it's not something you have to be so secretive about and if we can take away the secrecy then we can create a lot more involvement with it as well so i do yeah. a lot of work in primary schools as well on the same vein there's um, a quite a campaign of empowering children to get to a stage where they have a different outlook on money to their families um and i think that's quite exciting but we are still currently in a situation where women are paying for past experiences you know to get to a stage of divorce where you've only got was it say 26,000 you said the average yeah. divorce woman had 26,000 yeah. pounds in your pension pot is just you know that's not even one year's income for most people to live on but yeah so working hard on our policy changes to obviously try and yeah. make it a bit more fair um and it's obviously not just women either there's um True. there's seven groups who we've coined as under pensioned um but there are three groups of women in that so it's single mothers divorced women and then women generally but yeah I think the more times that we can raise this issue you know speak publicly about it on you know podcasts and yeah yeah exactly and you know the month of March is always busy for International Women's Day but kind of extending that to be beyond March and you know for us to be normalizing the conversation yeah you know I'm I'm a mum of a daughter who's four going on 24. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'd love for, you know, when she is at retirement age that, you know, there isn't this huge gender pensions gap that we see today. And, um, yeah, and things like, you know, gender pay gap as well. That just becomes unacceptable, you know, and we just, you know, like basically what you were just saying, you know, if we all sat around and started speaking about our salaries it would become quite stark you know and obvious that there are obviously these gaps and then as soon as we start normalizing that conversation we can obviously help to affect change but it's, it's still such a hidden topic and um we i don't feel like, feel like we're even anywhere near the brink of this we're like we're just starting to suggest that we do this and people still you know i say this to my friends and they're still not comfortable with it there's still so much that we need to unpack when it comes to it but the more we talk about it i think my main aim really is if we can get to the point where um there are red flags so women who are getting divorced are like this is a red flag i might not feel like an expert in divorce i might 
might not feel confident, but I now know I need to go and do something about this and find some expertise. I think that would be a huge, huge impact. Um, And actually, I love what you're talking about where it doesn't rely on the person even having that red flag because it's just it's default. It's default. You've got to talk about pension sharing. And ideally, if we can get to a place where you've got to talk about pension sharing because the assumption is it's going to be 50-50, why would it be different? That would be a great place to get to. So rather than the woman having to convince the ex that it should be 50-50, which is what the law says, you know, that that's the starting point, is actually getting to a place where you you tell me otherwise, why wouldn't it be? Um, I think it would be really amazing. Anything else that you want to share, Sam, before we end? Um, No, I don't think so. Other than it's been lovely to see you. You've been an amazing guest and thank you so, so much for all your insight. I will put your links um, below in the podcast and on the YouTube channel. So if you want to find out more about the research, um, you'll be able to find it there. Thank you again, Sam. Thank you, Kerry. Bye. You have been listening to the International Women's Day podcast series two, Breaking the Bias on Divorce. Please do tell your friends and let's keep the conversation going about the changes we need to see.